All right, get your Bibles out and let's turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, that's where we're going to start. And we're going to dig into this 40 Days in the Word series. I have loved learning and relearning some things that I always knew, but they've been sort of recharged in my life. I've loved meeting with my small group and, and talking about the ideas in the Scripture. So 40 Days in the Scripture, we've been talking about how the Word impacts our life. And we're now in the very sort of last two weeks, the detailed portion of what the Bible means to us and how it works. So today, we're going to talk about understanding the meaning of a text, understanding the meaning of a certain portion, a certain passage of the Bible. And we're going to look at it, and we're going to apply the four parts of our Bible study um, uh, understanding, the, the four ways that you study a passage. You look at it, you observe, right? Remember the four, the four ways that we study a passage? We, we, ob we observe, we have observation, we ask a question when we observe a passage. We ask, what does it say? It's real simple. We just write down a few things. What does it say? Just on the face of it. We're not looking for deep intellectual truths. We're just saying, what does it say? And then we go to interpretation. Interpretation is what does it mean? What does it mean? What does this scripture actually mean? What did it mean to the original hearers? And what does it mean to me? And then we begin to create correlation. So you have observation, you have interpretation, then you have correlation. You start asking the question, I wonder what, wonder what other passages might say about this passage. I wonder if we could look at some other passages and it would give us insight and understanding. And then there is uh, the final piece, which is application. Application. The question is, what should I do? <laughs> what should I do about what I've just read? This is an important piece that we're going to talk about today and just uh, unpack this idea of interpretation and correlation, and that's, that's what we're going to focus on. And, and we've chosen John 15 to look at it and to just mine for the truths that are deep within it. You've probably heard this idea that God doesn't want you to be successful necessarily. He wants you to be faithful, right? But that's only half right. But instead of success... Right? He, he doesn't just want you to be successful. The problem with success is we define it in all kinds of ways. What God wants you to do is be faithful, but he also wants you to be fruitful. It's difficult sometimes to determine success, but it's always easy to see fruit. What God wants from our lives is fruitfulness, not fruitiness, <laughs> fruitfulness. <laughs> He wants his people to be fruit-filled, not fruity. So what we, what we want to do is we want to look at this passage and look at what Jesus is saying about this idea. So John 15, one of the great passages of Jesus describing this idea of vine and branches and fruit and love and, and prayer. So let's look at it. Verse 1 says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. When I read that first verse, it kind of depresses me because <laughs> the reward for fruitfulness is more pruning. <laughs> I want you to notice that Jesus is saying what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm the vine. My father is the gardener, and my father has pruned me. Most people miss that. They go right to the parts of their lives that they need to be pruned. 
They go right to the part that they, that they think applies to them because they haven't read it and just observed. Jesus is saying this about himself. He's saying, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. He's saying to yourself, I can hear the wheels clicking, and you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus didn't have any sin, so what branches? No, he's not talking about sin here. He's talking about areas of his life that are not producing fruit, and then he prunes that back and makes it even more fruitful. Think about Jesus in the garden. What did Jesus pray in the garden? Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me. That was God, his father, the gardener, looking down and saying, it's okay, son. I can do this. You can do this. He said, not my will, but yours be done. I'm sure that felt to Jesus like a, a bit of pruning. So here it is. He says to his disciples that are around him, he says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now you should get your little pen out there and you should underline that little place. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That means that apart from Jesus, apart from his work, apart from what he does in you, apart from what's going on in you that he wants to engage in, the, the issues, the circumstances, the family dynamics, the job, no matter what you're trying to accomplish, without him, it's really hard to do anything of any value, of any worth. He says, if anyone does not remain in me, if anyone is not remaining me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Wait a minute. Does that really say that? What, what does that mean? You can ask for whatever you want? We're going to have to dig into that. This is to my Father's glory. Look what he says. He says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. It's all about his glory. It's not about yours. It's not about what you're doing. It's about his glory. He says that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my, what is that word? Love. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My, commandment is, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Whew. You ought to underline that. That's the one we're all trying to live out. We love God. But loving each other, Jesus is our example. Jesus is our illustration. He is our model. And the way he loves us is the way we're supposed to love one another. That means laying down our lives. That means surrendering. It possibly even means being mistreated and loving in, in the face of it. 
then he expands on it. He says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. <laughs> Notice what he says right here. He's, he's saying, look, I... I'm calling you friends. At first glance, you might look at it, you might say, oh, he's calling me his friend if I do what he tells me to do. <laughs> that sounds like my son, Ethan. He has all these really little friends, and he likes to boss them all around and tell them what to do. And as long as they do what he tells them, then, uh, then he likes them. That's not what Jesus is saying. <laughs> Jesus is, is saying that there's something about being in him, remaining in him, and then he's expanding on the idea, and he begins to say, I haven't called you servants. I don't just boss you around and tell you what to do. I've included you in everything that's going on. Everything that I'm involved in, I want you to be involved in. Everything that I'm doing, I want you to be doing. All the business that I'm doing, I want you to be involved in that kingdom business, and I've included you, and that's what that obedience does. It includes you in Jesus' business. He wants you to be in his, all up in his business. He does. He's included you. So here's what it says. It says, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father. I have made, he says, instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Oh, such a great phrase. You know what so many of us are struggling with is we think that we've somehow done our best to just choose him. And we don't do it very well every week. And we try and we, we fail. We, we forget that he chose us. He chose you. All your flaws, all your failures, he already knows. He chose you. He put his stamp on you. He said, I want to know that person. I want to know you. I want to know everything about you. And I want you to share your life with me just like I'm sharing my life with you. If you don't get that part right, it, you really live a life of guilt and condemnation. So he says, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Whoop, whoop, there it is again. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. Now, if we look at that passage, there are at least 17 sermons we're going to be here for a few moments, and what I want to do is I want to pick a couple things out so we can learn the ideas of, of interpretation and correlation. So we're looking, we're using this passage to kind of learn how to study the Bible. So here we go. Let's, look, let's zero in on verse 6. Let's zero in on verse 6. Verse 6 says, if anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. Now, I've heard some TV preachers, some radio preachers, people who are trying to pressure people who want to say, they want to interpret this passage as the fruit is another Christian that you've somehow gotten to come to Christ. And that if you don't do that enough, then you end up being thrown away and you lose your salvation and you burn in hell. <laughs> I know, shocking, right? But you can see how they get there. They're saying you... you um, are picked up, the branches are picked up if you don't bear fruit, and you're thrown into the fire and burned. The question we have to ask is, is that a good interpretation? Is it a good interpretation to say that Jesus is going to throw you out 
and send you to hell if you don't have enough people that you bring to him. No. It's a gross misinterpretation of this passage. But why do we know that? Why do we know that? Look at some basic rules of Bible interpretation. Number one, you got to consider the historical context. You got to consider who he's speaking to and why. Who's he speaking to? All right, so we begin to look who he's speaking to. He's speaking to his disciples in this particular passage. And we know that because just a couple chapters earlier, John records in chapter 13, that they all came to dinner together. So I want you to turn over there to John 13, and we'll look at context. We'll start looking at the environment. Because the first question we have to ask when we say, who is he be, who's being spoken to and why? We're asking what the message was to the, the original hearers. What is the message to his disciples? And if you look at chapter 13 through 17, what you find is John is recording Jesus' final words to his disciples. And they are final words of encouragement, of comfort before his arrest. He knows that what's coming for them is going to be difficult. And so he's trying to encourage them. And so look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1, we'll begin there. I want you to see that Jesus was talking to these disciples. He says, verse one says, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He showed them the full power of his love. He loved them to the last. Now, he knows what's coming. Look, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things, everybody say all things. He had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I want you to see the intimacy and the immediacy of what's happening when Jesus is talking to his disciples. Number one, I want you to see that all power and authority, he understood, I've got it, I know what's happening, I know what's coming, I know what's going on. And so what did he do with all that power, with all that authority? The Bible says he took a towel After three and a half years of ministry, the disciples kept trying to figure it out. They were trying to understand it. They were trying to figure out this kingdom that was coming into into existence. The announcement of the kingdom and Jesus healing people. And they were watching these things happen. They were trying to figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. They would fight over who was the greatest. They would wrestle over what different things meant that Jesus said. But they spent all this time with him. And Jesus was doing one final act that would try to express to them what his kingdom is all about. Here's here's the truth for you and me. Jesus wants you to have power and authority. The question you have to answer is, what will you do with it when you get it? Will you serve other people? Will you love them? This is what Jesus did. He begins to wash his disciples' feet. You have to understand he's taking the lowest place in the household. The lowest role of of any servant in the household was washing people's stinky, dirty, smelly feet. Cracked bunions. 
Toe jam. Just want you to see it. Jesus is doing something. I mean, come on, you guys, I mean, serious. All these these disciples, you don't think they had nasty feet? Jesus is washing their feet, but it's an illustration because among them are the denier and the betrayer and the knowledge that Jesus knows all those guys are going to leave him in the next week. He is serving them in spite of what he already knows. Why? Let's, Let's look. He says, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. So Peter's like, oh, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. You're the king. You're the one. There's no way you can do this. So Jesus says, I'm going to do this, but you you don't understand this quite yet, but I'm going to do this for you. And look at the next two words. No, Lord, said Peter. Now, when you're talking to Jesus, these are two words that you should really never put together. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, such an extremist. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Gotta love Peter, don't you? Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath only needs, needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, this is what he says, and you are clean, though not every one of you. You are clean. Didn't we just read that in John 15? He said, you are clean. Here he makes a parenthetical statement here. He says, but not every one of you. Why? Because Judas is still here. In between this gathering at dinner and in between the discussion of the vine, Judas leaves. Here he says, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He said, do you understand what I've done to you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Lots of people read that, and their first glance is, yeah, we just need to care for each other and serve each other. When you look deeper, what you realize is Jesus was washing the feet of all these disciples who would leave him, who would who would not be there for him, who would fall asleep in the most difficult, agonizing moment of his life. There's a little deeper meaning there, isn't there, when you, when you see that. I want you to see that there was intimacy in this dinner. I want you to see that he was encouraging them. For the rest of the chapter, Jesus emphasizes the importance of loving each other, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of the world coming against you you got to love one another. He knows about the time, what's going to happen to them, the tough time they're going to go through. John 14, Jesus makes a number of promises to them. And he says, here's four promises. I'll just give them to you. He says, don't worry. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you in heaven. Verse 3 and 4, don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. Number two, he says, you're going to be able to pray and ask anything in my name. You're not only going to get the power of the Holy Spirit, but you're going to get the authority that my name has. So you can do things I'm going to authorize you to do the same things I've been doing. Number three, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to live in you and comfort you. This is the person who's going to remind you of everything I've told you. I'm going to send this Holy Spirit to you. He's encouraging them. What is Jesus doing? He's sitting at the table. He's encouraging them. He's challenging them. He's helping them know it's going to be okay. Number four, I'm giving you the gift of peace, he says in chapter 14, verse 27. He says, don't be troubled. Don't worry. 
you have my peace. Not the kind of peace that the world gives, but the peace that I give. Then you get down to verse 31. Look what it says in John 14. Verse 31, if you look there, what it says is, come now, let's leave this place. So John records, they're having dinner. They get up from dinner. It's intimate. It's personal. He's encouraging them. And they begin to walk on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they walk to the garden, what begins to happen? They, they walk through a vineyard. And they begin to, Jesus begins to use the illustration before him and begins to talk about how he is the vine and how we are the branches. It's a visual illustration right there in front of them. Verse 11, he finishes, he talks about the branches and he concludes with these words. He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I want you to be full of joy. I don't want you to be full of sadness. He's encouraging them. Now, since he's doing all these things, Go back to verse 6. You remember verse 6, 15, 6? And we're talking about this idea of the branches not producing fruit and getting thrown out and then burning up in the fire. What are the odds that Jesus is giving his last words of, his in, of encouragement to his dearest friends by saying, you'll lose your salvation and burn in hell if you don't bear any fruit? Is that the context? No. You can look at that verse and know that that's not what it says. What it's saying is, is that fruit that's not, branches that don't produce fruit are not really useful for anything except for maybe firewood. And you thought there was some big meaning in that. I did all that to tell you, be careful. You don't, have to, you don't have to know every little detail and make every little thing come alive. What we want to do is make sure that when we read the Bible that we understand that all the big cookies are on the bottom shelf. What you have to understand is that it's not, it's not every detail that we're trying to accomplish here to make sure that the Bible gets, we get the truth. So many people see the Bible as a secret, a secret code. There's, a, there's like all these secret messages in the Bible and we have to figure it out. That's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is not about concealing, it's about revealing. It's about revealing who Jesus is. It's about revealing who God is. And so you can see it clearly when you begin to establish these ideas of understanding who it's talking to and what it's really saying. And so we're, we're looking at it. Sometimes, sometimes these, uh, these secret things, I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be a, a thing in the body of Christ uh, several years ago where they would attach a letter to every number, or sorry, a number to every letter in the scripture, and if you put the right numbers together, then it means that Henry Christinger is the Antichrist. <laughs> Some of you are like, Henry who? You're so young. Henry Kissinger, lots of believers thought he was the Antichrist because of this teaching in the body of Christ. It's so ridiculous. So what we're doing is we're taking, we're zooming out and we're looking at how to read the Bible. Number two, we've got to define some key terms. What are the key terms? What are the key terms? Well, there's the word love is mentioned nine times. Nine times. Fruit is also mentioned nine times. Come on, what movie is that from? Yeah, Ferris Bueller. Okay, so... Fruit and faithful is mentioned 45 times in the New Testament. 
Now, it's important for us to understand what these words mean, so we, gotta, we begin to ask what they mean. Now, in limiting our study, we, we can't ask what all the words mean, but let's, look, let's work with the word fruit. If you look through the scriptures, you can see there's fruit is an idea that's all over the place. In Matthew, there's the fruit of repentance. There's the fruit of the vine, which is communion or wine. There's we bore the fruit for death. We bore fruit for death. That's sinful lifestyle. The fruit of sin is death. Romans 15 says we've received this fruit, talking about money and offerings. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the nine, nine godly atti attitudes or attributes. Ephesians 5 says the fruit of light, truth, righteousness, and goodness. Colossians 1 says this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. He's talking about new believers. Hebrews 13 says praise to God. This is the fruit of our lips. So what is the definition of fruit in John 15? This is an important idea we should, we should mine for. What is the definition of fruit? What does Jesus mean when he says we must bear fruit in this context? Number three, we have to interpret unclear verses with clear ones. So not only are we defining what terms mean, we're beginning, we begin to understand what they, what they mean. By the way, the word fire in verse six, it's the Greek word pure, which is not Gehenna or Sheol. So we just know by that it's not talking about hell. It's talking about fire. So it's not, like we, it's not like we can have to misunderstand that word. We look at the word fruit. Now we have to mine for the definition. And we're not real clear what it is. So let's look at some other passages. Verse 4 says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Well, the first idea we might come upon is bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ, right? So we, we're, we're, we're looking for clues. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in, everybody say in, Every, bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. That means that fruit is an inside job, not an outside work. It happens on the inside, it happens when God is working on the inside of you. It happens when a seed is placed in the ground and begins to sprout something. So we look at this and we see that remaining in Christ, you can't just tack it on. It's not something you can add to your lifestyle. It's not like a, you're an orange tree and then you can tie on some apples and say, I'm an apple tree. It's not something you can add to. It's something that comes from within. Fruit is something that comes from a process that's long remaining in him remaining in him it's not imitation you're not trying to imitate somebody you're not trying to say oh i really want that fruit it's inhabitation it's jesus inhabiting you it's you inhabiting it's his spirit coming into you god's spirit flowing through you remain you know what it means or abide it means to stay to continue to endure to last. It's lasting. It takes a long time. Turn to your neighbor and say, what a bummer. <laughs> yeah. It takes a long time. It's not quick. It doesn't happen like, just like that. We want microwave Christianity. We want to hit the button and we want Jesus to do what we want him to do right now. That's not how fruit works. 
If you look at verse 8, what does it say? It says, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. So bearing fruit, this passage says, brings glory to God. Bearing fruit is something that honors God. It's something that brings him glory. It's, it's something that is, happens when you remain in Christ and he receives honor from it. Verse 11, if you keep going, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus tells us his motive for saying all these things to his disciples is so that they'll have joy. Bearing fruit actually gives us joy. It gives us complete joy. So we're still left with the question, what is fruit? So now we have to look for the most obvious meaning. Not the secret code, but the most obvious meaning. What does it say? I can feel the tension in the room. What we're going to do is we're not going to try to force a meaning into the scripture. We're going to look at its most obvious context. We're going to try to understand and let it speak for itself. In the theological world, they call this exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis means you are looking at the meaning and letting the Bible come, letting the Bible speak for itself. Eisegesis means you're coming with a kind of an expected or an experience that you're putting onto the scripture. You see the scripture and then you immediately put your experience onto it instead of letting it speak to you. So we don't force a meeting. So what's obvious about six? It's a fruitless fruit tree loses its purpose. It loses its purpose. It can only be used for firewood. It can only be used to heat some people up or, 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 to, or to cook dinner. But it's really not fulfilling its purpose of producing fruit. That's the meaning. That's the most obvious meaning of fruit. But if we go a little further... We see this in the text, verse 7. Are you still with me? Verse 7, it says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Wait a minute. Is that really true? Like, that sounds like a blank check. It's not a blank check. There's two extremes to this passage you could, you could take. One is, it's a blank check. I can get whatever I want. I've been really wanting that Cadillac. That's not, that's not what this is about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Getting whatever you're, you want out of your selfishness, out of your desire for more stuff. That's not what this is about. And it's also not, we also shouldn't go to the other stream and go, oh, he didn't really mean that. He, didn't, he really didn't mean you could have anything. So remaining in Christ, here's what it is. Remaining in Christ, abiding in him, being connected to the vine, having the spirit of God flowing through you and in you. It produces answered prayers. It produces answered prayers. God begins to answer the prayers that you begin to pray. But, of course, now the problem is we begin to focus on the last half of the verse. What I want to do is draw your attention to the first half of the verse. And I want you to see that what it says is, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. Here's the problem I see all the time. Lots of Christians want answers without any remaining. They want answers and they want it now. God doesn't work like that. Fruit doesn't work like that. Don't expect a $1,000 answer to a 10-cent prayer. God may not always give you what you ask for, but he's always going to give you something that's really good for you. 
That's what you have to trust. He's always going to answer you. But the more you remain in him, the more you, he gets into you, your prayers start lining up with what he already wants. Which is an amazing idea. He, Jesus really meant this. If you will go deep into him, if you will remain in him, if you will have a life of prayer, a life of a relationship with him, if you will be connected to everything that Jesus is and not, not create distance between you and him, if you'll draw him close, if you'll allow him to invade your life, something crazy will happen. Your desires will start lining up with his. You'll be able to speak to issues and problems, and the answer, the solution will come to you because he's flowing through you. You'll be able to say to that problem, you'll be able to articulate what's going on, or you will be able to trust him when you don't see it. That's really more the problem, isn't it? That's really more the problem, isn't it? So don't ask God, for what you think is good for you, maybe we should ask God for what he thinks is good for you. I think if you are remaining in him, that's going to be the byproduct. That's going to be the result. You remain. You know what Jesus said in that passage? He said, I want you to remain in my love. All right? Ephesians 3.16. Look at what this says. We're looking for correlation now. I pray that out of his glorious riches, Paul says, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. I want to strengthen you way down deep on the inside. Remember, fruit's not an outside thing. It's the inside job. He says, so that you may dwell, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that I pray that you being, what is that word right there? Rooted. <laughs> Rooted, that sounds familiar. And established in Love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses just information, just knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If you want all of God in you, the first thing you got to understand is his great love, which is why I think Jesus goes to it in this passage and he starts saying, look, I want you to remain in my love. When you don't understand how much God loves you, you suffer you're guilt-ridden. You fail, and when that failure happens, you don't know what to do. You gotta settle that he loves you, that he's paid for your sins in every way, past, present, and future, and you respond to him. Back to John, back to John. He says in verse 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. So here's the thing, answered prayer. When God does something beyond your own ability, Right? Like you're praying, God, I need your help. I don't know what to do. I don't have a job. I don't know where to go to get one. I put in 75 applications. I don't, it's not available anywhere. God, please. Isn't it a cool thing when God does something that you didn't create? You didn't, you didn't make it happen, but he made it happen? What, what does that do? Does that bring glory to yourself? Yeah, I put 75 applications in. No, your 75 applications didn't do squat. But what happened was God got involved and a job came from somewhere you didn't even know where to look and now God gets the glory for it. That kind of fruit's pretty good. That kind of fruit is really good. If you go to 1624 and John, he says, until now you have not asked for anything in my name, but ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. When you get answered prayer, you get complete joy. But here's the problem. So many people stop remaining and they stop praying. 
when they don't get the answer they want. James 4.2 says you don't have because you do not ask. When you don't pray, you don't cheat God, you cheat yourself. This is the kind of fruit that this passage is talking about. When we say, I've been praying and it's not working, you know you're doing the wrong thing. Because now you see prayer as a magic pixie dust that you can spray on a situation. Prayer doesn't work. <laughs> prayer is about a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Think about what Jesus said when he told his disciples how to pray. You know what he said? He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Notice the order. The order is important. Because he prays, he says, pray this idea first and then get to give us this day our daily bread. Sometimes what we want to do is we want to go, our Father, give us some bread. <laughs> Jesus told us that when we, we, we get the order right, we understand what he's doing that we're not trying to make something work. We're not trying to get our way. We're not trying to spray pixie dust on something. We're actually developing fruit. We're developing a relationship. Jesus said in verse 16 of, of chapter 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And so we bear fruit. Here's the thing. Here's the idea. We bear fruit by asking God in prayer. We bear fruit by asking God in prayer. We develop a love relationship with him in prayer. Prayer is not a formula. Philippians 4, 6, you know what it says? It says, don't be anxious about anything. That's a pretty tall order. But pray about everything. And then he gives some clarification. He says, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, when you just make your requests known to God, does that mean he's going to give you everything you pray for? No, but he will answer. He will act. And faith is believing that he is acting even though you don't see it. And so he's, ask, he's answering you and you can't even see it. Have you ever had a moment where you, where you were really praying for something and then later you look back and you're like, oh man, I'm so glad that didn't happen. That would have been so awful. I was praying about it and it wasn't, it wasn't right at all. And thus I quote Garth Brooks. Thank God for unanswered prayers. See, I don't believe in unanswered prayers. I believe God answers. We just don't always hear it. We don't always see it. We don't always know it. We're still, we're, we're trying to figure it out. Our lives are lining up with him. We see this fruit of God's work in our lives happens through prayer, through the dialogue, through the discussion, through the asking. Never stop asking. If you never stop asking, you'll get it. Now the questions will change. The questions will change. But you've got to keep asking. Close your eyes and bow your heads.